Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we discuss philosophic and political ideas with adventurous disregard for intellectual trends. I'm Shiloh Brooks from the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm joined today by Colleen Sheehan, Professor of Political Science and Director of Graduate Studies in the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Sheehan is author of books on James Madison and the Federalist Papers, and she's published articles on subjects ranging from the American founding to Jane Austen. She was visiting scholar in conservative thought and policy at the Benson Center in 2019, and she's a former professor at Villanova University. Our discussion today focuses on Jane Austen's novels, paying particular attention to Emma. We explore what makes Austen's character so enduring, the lessons Austen teaches about love in Emma, and what readers can learn from Austen's complex use of language and her penetrating psychological insight into human nature. We're joined in conversation by Betty Kilsdonk, Associate Director of the Benson Center and Jane Austen superfan. Colleen Sheehan, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. And we have a special guest, the Associate Director of the Benson Center, Betty Kilsdonk, Jane Austen superfan. She's here with us today, too. So it's going to be me and Betty and Colleen having a jam on Jane Austen. Welcome, you guys. Thank you, Shiloh. Thank you. Yeah. I want to start out by asking you a broader question about Austin. I think our uh, order of business today will be to talk broadly about Austin as a literary, arguably, I think, philosophic figure, and then to talk in particular later on about Emma, which is one of her great, great books and one that I think the three of us very much uh, enjoy. So I think I want to start out, Colleen, by just asking you this question. You know, Austin is one of these authors I study Nietzsche. He's one of these authors, too. There's a handful of authors in the Western tradition where when they get you, it's like a virus and you want to read everything that they've read. And there's not not everybody's this way. I don't want to read everything Kant ever wrote. You know, it's not I'm not I don't want to do that. But, you know, some people are this way with Plato. You know, some people are this way with Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, Nietzsche. They get under your skin. Austen is that way. So I wanted to start by asking you. Why, what is it about Austin that's so attractive, so enduring? What is it about her that's like a virus that gets under your skin? <laughs> Shiloh, that is, that is a very interesting way uh, to put it, that I've never thought about it that way before. Um, <clears throat> Nietzsche might be a disease, but I don't think Austin <laughs> is. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there are people who just absolutely love Jane Austen, and I have to admit I'm probably one of them. What is it that's so special about Austen? I would say, first of all, she's really smart, and her smarts and her talents, her ability to write, to turn a phrase. But, you know, there are a lot of people that have that are smart and have the ability to turn a phrase. I mean, there's Shakespeare, there's Nietzsche, there, there's, uh, there's others, but we don't have societies. There's no Nietzschean, Nietzscheanites, as far as I know, society that gets together every year and dresses up like Nietzsche, as far as <laughs> right. I'm aware of. <laughs> um, I think with Austin, it's the combination of just how incredibly brilliant and insightful and witty and provocative she is but also it's about what she cares about, what she writes about. She writes about what we care about, what matters to us. Uh, And it's the biggest question, not just the big questions, it's the big question. What is, how should we live our lives? 
she shows us in a sense, um, uh, without ever lecturing us, she never lectures us, but she shows us uh, how we could become better people uh, and how that might lead us down a path to a happier life. And who doesn't care about that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a nice way of putting it. And you indicate that, I mean, in a way, I think what you're saying is the questions that Austin is addressing are living questions. They don't ever die. Um, and this seems, this seems true to me. If you could, let me ask you this. I mean, with respect to those questions, you mentioned, you know, she's, she's posing the question in a way that's a great philosophic question about how we should live. There are other themes, it occurs to me in her writing, um, that are deeply philosophic. I have in mind, there's a certain kind of political theme in her writing, a, a kind of a reflection on the aristocracy. But even more than that, one of the greatest or deepest philosophic themes that seems to me to appear in Austin is Eros, love. Um, Austin is a master of, of Eros, uh, just, I mean, arguably, perhaps on the, on the same plane as, as many of the other great philosophers, Plato, Xenophon, uh, philosophers of Eros. How do you understand the role of love in Austin's writing? I mean, what is she, what is she exploring and what's peculiar about her exploration of love? It, it, we, we need not tell people Jane Austen is uh, uh, the rare woman who is in the canon of the great books of the West. So my sense is that her perspective on this might be rich is a consequence. And do, do you have any sense for what she brings to the table on some of these deeper questions like that? Ah, yeah. Because um, Austin does write about, uh, of course, love in the sense of courtship and marriage, you know, sort of romantic love. In fact, Alan Bloom wrote an interesting article on that, that <clears throat> he published as part of an anthology years ago, uh, in which he thinks of Jane Austen as a uh, romantic, you know, sort of in in the um, tradition of the long, well, it wasn't a very long tradition then, but certainly starting with the romanticism founded by Rousseau. Uh, and Austin does advocate not arranged marriages, but, uh, and not just based on class, but based on, on genuine feelings of love. But here's what's interesting. For Austin, love isn't, remember, remember sense and sensibility. That's what this is about, right? Um, I mean, in a sense, it's, <laughs> no pun intended, in a sense, uh, Marianne and Eleanor are are showing us, um, Marianne represents romantic love, right? No hold bars, forget any kind of practicality. If that's where your feelings bring you, then then go in that direction. Whereas Eleanor says, well, there's, you know, love isn't just a fancy. It's not just a feeling. Uh, it, it also has to do with something else. And there's a certain ne necessity to be prudent about some of these things. Well, that sounds kind of cold where Marianne sounds, you know, passionate and what it should be. So where does, where does Jane Austen fall in that? Right. Well, I don't think she, she, I don't think she falls on the side of Marianne, certainly, but she does fall on the side of Eleanor, but not the way I just phrased it. It's not a coldness on Eleanor's part. It's a practicality of the world, of, of, of needing to, if you're going to have children, be able to provide for them, right? Remember the prices in Mansfield Park. I mean, they have nothing. And so if you have nothing, you're not going to get an education either. And you're not going to have the opportunities in the world to, to live a good life. So Austin is practical about these things. 
I think Bloom is wrong. She's not simply a romantic. But I also think she's not at all cold about these things. This is not a steely, sharp, uh, just a rationality. Here's, here's I, I think, a good example of it. Some people think in Emma that Mr. Knightley lacks passion. You know, he's, we don't even know where he, his parent. we don't know about his parents, where he came from. He's just presented in the beginning as Mr. Knightley. And you have to come to know him through what he says and through his actions. Everybody else, we know something about them. But with him, you have to judge for yourself based on uh, what, how he lives and, and how he acts. And so some readers really think Knightley is, why did Emma fall in love with him? I mean, what is there about him? He doesn't even seem passionate or attractive or something. Well, Austin says at one point about Knightley, because he never wears his, his feelings on his sleeve. He's not at all like Frank Churchill. or uh, he's, he, he, he's not somebody who smiles so much or bows so well as Frank Churchill does. But she says, you have to be careful that you don't misunderstand because it's in that kind of, of character like Mr. Knightley where the feelings are most retentive. In other words, there's a depth to Knightley's feelings that you might miss if you don't pay attention to who he is. This is a, this is a classical gentleman of, of, the, of, of, of great solidness. But, you know, we live in a day and age where if, if, if somebody doesn't tell you that, that they're wonderful, you won't know they are. And, you know, that's what, one of the things that I really like about Austen that draws me to Jane Austen. For me, the core of her novels is this understanding of the psychology of people and the understanding that we cannot know everything about others when we think we know about others is when she shows us over and over again that we are blind to the realities of situation. Just similar to Shakespeare to me, this really in-depth understanding of, of that people are complex and we can't know everything, even though we want to control everything in our world, we cannot do that. that that's, a, that's another theme. I think with Jane Austen, you know, Emma really wants to control her world and the world is bigger than what she can control. <laughs> you know, she's fine over and over again. Every time she thinks she's got everything mastered, she does not. And to me, that is one of the, the real draws I have that takes me back to Jane Austen over and over again. I think that's really well said, Betty. That um, There's a certain teaching of humility, isn't there, about stepping back and and uh, really watching and others and listening to others and not because Emma makes that mistake all the time. She knows it before she's even been introduced to it, right? But one other thing on this question of love and arrows, Shiloh, um, think of the mistakes that, that some of the people make in the novels. For example, Elizabeth Bennet about Wickham. I mean, the name should have given it away, right, to begin with, that maybe there's something wrong with this fellow. But she really misunderstands Wickham and Darth. Darcy. And she has to come to learn that one had all the appearance of virtue and the other had all the reality of it. That was just the opposite of, of her first impressions, right? Or Emma with, with uh, Mr. Elton and Mr. Martin. She totally gets it wrong in both of those cases. And so uh, Austin is sort of teaching us both the humility about learning from what's before you 
and not jumping to conclusions. But she's also teaching us that love is not just necessarily uh, what brings us instant pleasure or momentary pleasure. That we have to, that love is something much more precious than that. There are things in life that don't deserve our love. There are things in people in life that don't deserve our life, our love. And there are other things that are truly worth loving. And that's a very classical perspective, this idea that love has to do with uh, that which, uh, that there are some things in life that uh, are truly worth loving. Really, in a sense, for people like Plato and Aristotle, that lesson of coming to love what is worth loving is what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. That's a very, uh, it seems to me, holistic way of putting it. And I think now we're kind of, we picked up the thread that um, is most interesting to me about her novels. And and what I want to do is take Betty's remark about Jane Austen being a, a, a master of portraying psychological complexity, psychological nuance, combine it with your remarks about the complexity of um, her uh, or her perspicacity on love and talk now in a more focused way on Emma, about Emma. And, and we've been gesturing in that direction anyway. And let's talk about Emma, the character. And, and I have in mind the following thing. Um, with respect to what Betty says, um, Emma is someone who suffers from, uh, I think it's, it's fairly obvious, a certain kind of what I'll call erotic self-deception. And that is to say, and, and, one, and the reason I bring this up is because I see this in other great literature in the Western tradition. And I, I think Austin may, in an in a inadvertent way, perhaps conscious way, be in conversation. But she claims uh, in the novel, it's on several occasions, not to want to be married. And in a certain way, not to be interested in love. And yet her highest interest is precisely love insofar as she envisions herself as a matchmaker. And so she's got this contradictory character to her nature. She's not interested in love, but at the same time, love consumes her all the time. And you, and you see this young girl who's 21 and you think, you don't see it, do you? <laughs> you, you? You have no interest in love, yet every waking moment of your life is spent thinking about the nature and, and character of love, perhaps for other people, not for yourself, at least at the beginning. And so. My question is, is whether you can unpack the kind of confusion that this character, Emma, suffers from and then give us, or at least the three of us together, try to provide an account of what it is that um, Emma learns about herself and about love. Because by the end of the novel, she says her matchmaking days, as she indicates, her matchmaking days are over. And so, because now she's in love. And so there's this weird way in which she acknowledges her, her desire for love and her getting it cures her self-deception. Um, and so I want to unpack the psychological nuance here and try to figure out what it is about love Austin's trying to teach us through the psychological complexity of Emma. Do you want to feel that, Betty, first? <laughs> I think, again, another very interesting take. <laughs> it's something I hadn't actually thought a lot about. But yeah, Emma is, is an interesting character. One of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, she when Austin herself said that Emma was a heroine that whom no one but Austin herself will much like. I think part of this this complexity about her character maybe that what Shiloh's saying, you know, she she the way she talks and the things that she do maybe don't always agree with each other. Is 
her preoccupation with matching matchmaking. Well, it's matchmaking for other people. It's her to me. It's her sense of wanting to control the world beyond romantic love. It's she wants to manage, just like she manages her father's household. She wants to manage everybody's relationships too. <laughs> and only at the end does she come to realize what is the best outcome for herself. But I think that's part of her maturation. She matures during the novel is something I think that is so interesting. She she does wrong. She does badly. You know, she insults, she insults Miss Bates at Box Hill and, and from a, from a kind of a childish, unthinking perspective. And, but she realizes she makes amends. We are human beings. We make mistakes. We have opportunities to make amends. And through that, we mature. And she doesn't find her true love until she has matured in the, in the course of the novel. She, uh, go ahead, Colleen. Oh, Betty, I think that was just so well said. I think you are absolutely right that uh, Emma wants to control everything and everybody in Highbury. Um, she's, she's mistress of Hartfield, remember, because her mother died when she was younger. And there's Miss Taylor, uh, her, uh, her governess. But Emma controls her, too. <laughs> Emma is more Miss Taylor's teacher than vice versa. Uh, and so, I mean, but there's a bit of a, an aspiring tyrant in Emma. Uh, she wants to control everybody and everything without their consent. <laughs> she's just up to it. And this is partly because she's this wealthy young woman with nothing else to do in this small little town with nothing very much happening. And so this is, this is the most fun game in town. And she's on to it, right? Yeah. And she, her, she herself thinks she doesn't need anybody or any, anything else. She, well, she's got her own money that she's going to inherit from her father and estate. And she, unlike other women in her time, in the Regency period, uh, she's not going to have to depend on a man uh, to, to make it in the world. Yeah. And then add that to the fact that she, her, she lives in this isolated little village in this, uh, in this, where she is up to meddling in other people's affairs, and she's enjoying it. And she also lives in a, her own little isolation in the world of her imagination, uh, where she doesn't need she doesn't need to experience things in the outside world to know how things should be. She's already got it all figured out. Emma has it all figured out, or at least so she thinks she does. And that's the very opening salvo of the novel, right? That she's lived nearly 21 years in this world with little to distress or vex her. Well, the whole rest of the novel coming is what is going to distress and vex uh, Emma because she doesn't have it all figured out. Yeah, I like that you use the word tyrant to describe her, Colleen. I think it's accurate. And the reason I like it is because it's it's merely proof of the, um, and I know my language is odd here, but of the erotic dysfunction from which she suffers. I mean, doesn't uh, Alcibiades, who's a great tyrant, is also a man who has a love problem. This happens, to, I mean, many tyrannical people are people with a love problem. And, and, and when, I, when I say um, that she, she has this, I mean, and that she suffers from self-deception, which sounds odd. I give a few examples. So first of all, with Mr. Elton, you know, she has no idea that this guy's actually in love with her and not Harriet Smith. 
she's like, oh, you know, they're she draws this picture of Harriet and Mr. Elton's like, what? A, just a beautiful picture. I'm going to go to London and get it framed. And Emma's like, he loves Harriet. He just can't wait. You know, and it turns out Mr. Elton loves Emma. You know what I mean? And then she's got this thing for Frank Churchill where she thinks, oh, he's in love with me. And it turns out that's not the case at all. He's in love with Jane Fairfax. And then um, she gives uh, uh, Harriet the advice not to marry Mr. Martin, who she's very impressed with his letter. He, he writes her this proposal letter and Emma takes the letter. It's like, let me see that letter. She expects it to be, you know, this letter from this peasant. And Harriet's like, well, how was the letter? And, and Emma's like, this is actually, this is a very good letter. You should still say no. You know what I mean? And then, of course, it ends up Harriet marries uh, Mr. Martin and is just totally spellbound, you know, by this man. Um, and Mr. Knightley calls her out on this, you know, so I think he's sort of on to this. And the other thing uh, with respect to a certain kind of erotic um, difficulty that she suffers from is that she's such a, a good minister to the poor. She goes and she wants, in a certain sense, she wants them to love her. This is in a way tyrannical. And she goes and she makes their beds and she is very kind to them and she loves them. Um, yet when a poor person crosses her, Miss Bates, boy, she lets her have it. Like it's not, you know, there's a certain kind of generosity that's missing when you're not in your place, you know, kind of a thing. And so um, it seems, and, and this is why she sort of regrets herself uh, later as matchmaker. She's like, well, apparently I, I have no idea. Um, what I'm talking about. And so um, that's what's so interesting to me about what Austin's trying to do is she's portraying this classic type of, of, of uh, this classic human type, which is love sick, love intoxicated, but deeply confused, and yet thinks that they know it all and that they're a master. You know what I mean? And this happens in other novels. I'm remi reminded of the first historical novel, Xenophon's Education of Cyrus, where Cyrus swears off love and he says, I'll never, I'll never fall in love with anyone. And yet he doesn't see that he's taking over the entire world and he wants the whole world to fall in love with him. And at the end of that novel, he calls himself a great matchmaker. Uh, he's, he says he's a great matchmaker. So this is what I have in mind with respect to what is it, you know, that's, that Austin's trying to teach us. I know this is very difficult. I don't know, but it's fascinating. Well, that is a very interesting comparison to Xenophon and I think you might have uh, an article there, Shiloh, that, I mean, I'd like to hear more about it. Um, if Emma is lovesick, uh, with whom is she in love? Well, I think herself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, which, which is what tyrants do, right? So, I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of food there for thought. Let me just comment on, on I mean, you express that so well, you know. Emma wants Harriet to be in love with Mr. Elton, but Mr. Elton is really in love with Emma. I mean, think of it this way. So, so Harriet, uh, so Mr. Martin is in love with Harriet, who is actually, but not really, in love with Mr. Elton, who is not in love with Harriet, but in love with Emma. And, you know, the list just keeps going on. Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill and Mr. Knightley. Well, this novel is Austin deliberately uh, based this novel on Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, where that's exactly what happens, right? Um, it all gets mixed up with Lysander and Demetrius and Helena and Hermia, and one is in love with the other who's in love with somebody else who's in love with... Well, Shakespeare's having so much fun with this, and Austin takes that and applies it to this little world of Highbury. That is, that uh, love is blind, right? And it's almost like there's a there's a... a uh, a puck, a cupid out there 
coordinating things and it all goes wrong. You know, remember Shakespeare says the, the course of true love never did run smooth. And Austin writes in Emma in the ninth chapter, she quotes that. She says, the course of true love never did run smooth. Well, the Hartfield edition of Shakespeare would have a long footnote on that passage, she says. Emma, the novel Emma, it is a long footnote on that passage where everything has gone wrong with love. Everything is upside down and backwards and topsy-turvy. And Austin is having a heyday playing on that Shakespearean theme. Now, that's all fun. But what is it? But is there some teaching in that? Well, there always is for Austin, right? There's always something else going on. She's like the layers of an onion. You have to keep peeling it and peeling it because there's so much going on. You can get one part of it and still just have a wonderful time reading the novel. And then the second time you read the same novel, you say, wow, look at what I missed the first time I read it. I still find things reading these novels for the 50th time. So I wanted to ask you, Colleen, if you could talk a little bit about the riddles in Emma, when you're talking about the layers of the onion and all the different layers of complexity in the novel, one of the, one of, I think, part of those layers have to do with the wordplay. You know, there's a lot of wordplay, things that further the plot, they help illuminate character. Can you talk about what, what are your favorite riddles are in Emma and what those, what the deeper meanings might be that, that those of us who are not alive during the Regency era, when when Jean wrote the book, things that we might not, not get just as a casual reader of the novel? Betty, there, there are so many. Where to start? Uh, well, let me just mention a couple. Um, so uh, you mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation on Box Hill when Emma uh, really went after Miss Bates. She was cruel to Miss Bates. Uh, her Her wittiness turned into... Well, worse than buffoonery. I mean, it was mean-spiritedness, really. She just couldn't resist, and it was it was contempt. And Knightley calls her out there. Emma keeps saying throughout the novel, okay, all right, I've made a mistake. I'm going to get better. I've got this. I've got it figured out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to morally repent. I'm going to change my wicked ways. And then she falls right back into it every time, you know? And we all kind of, I mean, it's not hard to understand that. At least I've done that many times in my life. I think I've, I've, I've figured it out and I'm going to get better and, and learn from my errors. And then the next thing I know, I make a mistake again, right? It's part of life learning. And Emma does this time and time and time again. And then at Box Hill, when she insults Miss Bates and Knightley calls her to task and he says, badly done, Emma, badly done indeed she actually finally gets it. Now, this, is, this happens, and she's then in the carriage riding down Box Hill, and by the bottom of Box Hill, she is beside herself. She's in tears. Emma, Emma is in tears. I don't think Emma cries very much, by the way. Um, she's in tears. She's finally, she's finally properly humbled such that she gets herself she comes to know herself. Well, I took a trip to England a few years ago, and I wanted to go to Box Hill just to see it. And it's an amazing place. So you get there. There's really just this hill. <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a little train uh, sign for Box Hill. Uh, 
at the base of Box Hill, there's a little tiny hamlet. I mean, a small little tiny village. And so the, the train sign uh, for Box Hill has also the name of the village on it, the hamlet. And it's Box Hill and West Humble. So it's at West Humble, at the base of Box Hill, that Emma finally is humbled. And it's sort of the turning point of the novel. Well, anybody who read the novel in Austin's time, or probably who lives around that area or has traveled there in England, gets it. They laugh. But for most of us, we didn't know that. And so she, that's, she has that kind of wordplay all through this novel. Wordplay. And also, she has charades and anagrams and riddles and conundrums and puns and double entendres. And it's all through, uh, totally through this novel. She really gets the Prince Regent. Remember, the Prince Regent, she has to dedicate this novel to him. But she doesn't like him. She thinks he's a bad guy. He calls himself the first gentleman of, of Europe. And she thinks he's a philanderer a gambler, an adulterer, a cheat. She doesn't like him, but she's got to dedicate it to him. You've got to know with Austin's spiritedness and wit, which by the way, Emma reflects that kind of spiritedness and incredible uh, intelligence and, and, and energy that Austin would not have stood for that. Somehow she would get the Prince Regent back. Well, she does. She does. She plays this game of, of, of um sure uh they're, they're playing their the the poems uh that are little poems that are dropped by the fairies supposedly once again in that first chapter nine in the first volume it just seems like it's a, it's you know mr elton's little love poem to supposedly to harriet though it's really to emma well the lines of that if you play the kind of games that austin is is has the, her characters play throughout the novel that is uh, anagrams and acrostics, and you do that with the little poems, uh, that little poem that Elton drops, you find that there's an acrostic and an anagram in there that points to the Prince Regent. Remember, who is the Prince Regent? The son of, of, of King George III, he's going to be King George IV, but before he becomes King George IV, he is, like Prince Charles today, the Prince of Wales. And so she plays on that idea of the Prince of Wales, but spelling Wales, W-H-A-L-E-S, after a poem by Charles Lamb making fun of the Prince of Wales. So there's another example of, of how Austin plays games throughout the novel. One, one quick last thing. Um, when they play uh, the, the game of letters and uh, uh, Frank Churchill is, is secretly communicating with his love Jane Fairfax and he spells out Dixon and he spells out blunder because he's given away something he shouldn't have given away. He writes, he writes out a third group of letters that get brushed away. Jane, Jane Fairfax brushes them away. No more. Well, Austin, of course, these novels live on. They're alive. And she tells her nieces and nephews afterwards, they want to know what did he spell? So she tells them he spelled pardon. Well, think of the very end of Midsummer Night's Dream. The very end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck looks to the audience and he asks for our pardon. Gentles, if you pardon, we will mend. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so much there uh, with respect to these word games. I had never thought about this. This is fascinating. One thing when you, when you were talking that occurred to me to ask is you mentioned you had visited Box Hill and it, you, you saw this little village with the word humble in its name. Can we say exactly what happens to Emma when she starts to cry? In other words, what I'm confused about what it is. We wait the whole novel for that moment where she has this moment of self-enlightenment. You know, what does she realize about herself? I suspect it's more than just, oh, I was, I'm mean. <laughs> you know, I was mean to, to Miss Bates. There's some piece of her character which disgusts her, which disturbs her, which she finally sees and which I, I suspect Mr. Knightley has had a kind of, you know, uh, eye for for perhaps some years and has been amused by, but perhaps also somewhat troubled by. What is this aspect of herself that she sees? What is this self-enlightenment moment uh, of deep shame? What is she ashamed about? She's a different person after that. And, and why? See, Emma is not a vicious human being, which is why we can come to love her, just as Jane Austen loves her. Uh, Emma has, we, we learned early on in the novel that she's been given principles. She has been taught the right principles. Miss Taylor has, and, and her father, they've done an okay job with that. It's not that she doesn't know how she should live. It's just that she doesn't do it. <laughs> and of course, this is not uh, unusual, right? This is what moral education is about. Coming, it's, it's both coming to know the right thing to do and then actually putting it into practice. Remember that, that, that line from um, Merchant of Venice, if to do were as easy as to know what were good to do, chapels had been churches and poor men's cottages, princes' palaces. Uh, the brain can make laws for the blood, but a hot temper leaps over a cold decree, right? And that's the, this is Emma's challenge. She knows the right thing to do, but she's so, she's so strong-willed uh, and she's so sure of herself that, that she doesn't need any kind of uh, correction or any kind of guidance that she gets it wrong. And so that moment, she's actually finally learned that she's got to look outside of herself in terms of genuinely caring about others, that she has not, she's, she's misunderstood and that she needs to come, she needs to be a better person, not only for Miss Bates, but for her own happiness. Because you almost wonder at that moment, don't you? if that's the moment she realizes she's in love with Knightley. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe. I had never thought of that before. It's, it was just this moment that I thought of that. This is yeah. what conversations can do when you're <laughs> with other people, as opposed to just living alone in your own imagination, thinking about something. Yeah. I mean, it's at that moment. I mean, you know, it's at that moment. I think you're right because she admits her love for Knightley not long thereafter. I mean, you know, I, this seems very plausible to me. Maybe, maybe we could, in fact, um, talk about, uh, and I know, Betty, this is of interest to you, talk about the suitors in the book. I mean, we, you know, we've talked a lot about Emma now, but there are these, you know, as a, as a male reader, I'm always looking at Mr. Knightley, you know, uh, and wondering what aspects of his character I should emulate. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, uh, Colleen, I'll tell you, I confess you used this term for him, um, earlier, I, I recently reread the novel and like, I don't know, 30 pages in and I was like, well, Mr. Knightley's a great soul man. I just, I just, I just immediately, I was like, he's, you know, he's Aristotle's megalosuke, like he's the guy, you know, um, and, and it's just, he's just kind of a stunning figure. 
where whereas my wife very much likes Mr. Darcy uh, more than, than Mr. Knightley, and I don't I don't understand why. But you know, perhaps we could discuss some of the um, uh, gentlemen in Emma, and then compare later on some of these gentlemen to gentlemen in other novels, such as Mr. Darcy. But we've got Mr. Martin, Mr. Elton, Frank Churchill, and Mr. Knightley, and Emma's father, who are the main uh, males in the novel. Um, you know. Betty posed a question earlier uh, in a conversation that, that she and I had about true gentlemanliness. What does it mean to be a true gentleman and who is a true gentleman? And so I'm curious what, you know, it, Austin has this reflection on women and the kind of self-deception uh, or erotic pitfalls of, of, uh, of Emma. What is she trying to teach us with these men? Perhaps even about men, but even more generally a human question. Um, but let's reflect on these guys. And you have to talk about the names of people in this conversation. Yeah, fair, fair game. Knightley, Churchill. Yeah. The names mean something, I think, right? Just like Wickham. Then the names have something to do with insights into their character, perhaps. Yeah. yeah seems... Go ahead, Betty. What do you? Well, think I'm just thinking. Um, Knightley is such a great name for that character, right? Yeah. <laughs> he is Knightley. He has. He has. He has the the. The guy that comes in, he comes into Emma's life, you know, periodically throughout her life, and he's the he's the shining character, right? He he you see very little flaw in Knightley as a character. And he lives in an abbey. <laughs> yeah, and he lives in an abbey. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, more wordplay, yeah. right? <laughs> and he's a and Frank. Oh, but Martin, Frank. you know, there's class, class comes into this as much as anything else, too, as far as these characters, right? Who ends up with who? You know, Martin is the name of the farmer. It's not Knightley, it's Martin. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. And is, is, so talk about that a little bit more. Does, is, does the word Martin? I'm just saying, that, like Churchill, Churchill is, comes to, you know, something that's elegant, right? Or grandeur, just like Knightley is. I think it's, it's, it's trying to say something about class. Yeah. I see, I see. It's a I common see. name. Um, yeah, and, a common name. Course, Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Frank, uh, the one thing about Frank is he's not Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank actually tries to be uh, courtly, gallant, knightly. Um, he smiles so much and bows so well. I mean, he's obsequious. He's, he's like the, the courtesan. Um, whereas Knightley's not like that at all. Knightley doesn't want any deception or any surprises. He wants plain, plainness, openness, candor, right? And so in a sense there, uh, Knightley is Frank and Frank is gallant or Knightley, or at least attempts to be. So there's, there's, there's that going on. But there's that question of who is the true gentleman all throughout the novel, right? It starts out where Emma says about Mr. Martin, he's no gentleman, he's just a farmer. Um, but of course, she says Mr. Elton is a gentleman. And so what, is, what does Mr. Elton do later on in the novel to show that, in fact, she got this so wrong? Well, the way he treats Harriet at the Crown Inn Ball is just despicable. He lies. He lies. Uh, and he's just a bad fellow. He's, he's, he's not a man of upstanding character, but it turns out in the end that poor, literally poor Mr. Martin is an upstanding uh, human being. 
And so Austin is showing us that the gentleman, the true gentleman, is someone of upstanding character, that it doesn't have to do with just title or money or class, right? It has to do with what it means to be uh, someone in command of himself. And, uh, well, as you just said, Shiloh, the magnanimous man, mm. that's what the gentleman is, someone of, of a genuinely uh, good and great soul. Now, the other part of the pun that's going on here that's, that's read between the lines is that the Prince Regent has donned himself the first gentleman of Europe. Mm. <laughs> and so we're meant to reflect on that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting what you say about Knightley as magnanimous, which I agree with and was struck by too before I heard you say it. One, one thing about him, when I compare him to Emma, that's interesting is if you the magnanimous man, the Aristotelian magnanimous man is aware of his own superiority. He, he knows he's superior and he's sort of ministering, you know. And this is interesting, uh, an interesting character feature of Mr. Knightley who, who does this. He's very kind. He, he dances with Harriet. He, um, you know, he's very kind to Miss Bates at those moments. I'm just, I'm just, I fall in love with the guy. I'm just like, geez, if I could be half of that man. But what's interesting to me is Emma seems to have a similar quirk and that she's aware of her own superiority. Like, you know, this is part of her deal. Like she's, she's, you know, she goes over to the poor and she very much, she says hi to all of the, you know, the gentry as she goes, you know, she sort of goes by and she, the poor people are there and she says hello and she goes and gives them bread and soup. And Harriet's very puzzled by this, but, you know, Emma explains it. So she's aware of her own superiority too. But the difference is he's got a healthier awareness of his own superiority than she does. Because my sense is that she's sort of lording it over. I think she gets pleasure from being higher, uh, a kind of perverse pleasure from being higher. And when Knightley criticizes her for telling uh, Harriet not to marry Mr. Martin, he says, you don't know what's good for her. She, no one knows who her parents are. She's destined to be an old maid. He's a gentleman, a farmer. I know him. He's on my, he's on my land. You, you're, you're insane. This is, per, you know, and he's very, you know, um, for for he he criticizes Emma for mistaking the order of rank, and he says in a way that is um, harmful to Harriet, and so he sort of says you need to understand what these people need, uh, you know, and these kinds of things. And at the same time, he uh, later in the novel he sort of criticizes her for lording her superiority over uh, Miss Bates. Um, you know, they're poor. Um, why did you say these things to her? You know, these kinds of things. And so he's got a healthier awareness of his superiority than she does. And it's interesting because what I, what I suspect may happen is when you mentioned the moment when she cries and she's humbled, maybe she comes around to his, his way of thinking about herself. You see what I mean? I mean, maybe she comes around to his view of the kind of nobility of superiority, not this resentful kind of, you know, look, look how much better we are than you and, you know, these sorts of things. And so she, in a way, becomes a gentleman, a gentle lady, uh, in my view, in a higher way. I don't know what you what you make of that, but it's interesting. Too. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right, Shiloh. I mean, Emma is a snob. Yeah, Emma's a snob. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, she 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 just gets the idea of, of rank wrong, basing it on the just on class and money and estates and so on. She doesn't want to intermingle with the coals, but she can't stand <laughs> to be left out. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas there's Fairfax who who has nothing to her name, 
Right. Uh, and she's a woman of genuine elegance and abilities and talents and character. But still, here's interesting. Here's an, still, Knightley falls in love with Emma and not with Jane Fairfax. Why do you think that's so, Betty and Shiloh? Because really, Jane Fairfax is, 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 seems to be the genuinely superior character. And, and she's also beautiful. She's as beautiful, if not more beautiful, probably than Emma. Before we answer the question, can you give an account of Jane Fairfax's superiority? Like on what, by what measures is she a superior woman? Well, I, I have the impression, and of course she's not uh, outlined for us to the extent yeah. that, that, that Emma is, but she is called in the novel, the other heroine. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. Austin makes it clear that she's also a heroine. She is absolutely beautiful. She's composed. She's elegant. She can play the pianoforte like no one in Highbury. She's, she's a gentle soul. I mean, she, she seems to me, well, she's much more than Frank Churchill deserves. Remember at the end when he wins her heart, he is called the child of good fortune, which yeah. you might remember that Shiloh in um, Oedipus is called the child of fortune. Frank Churchill is called the child of good fortune. <laughs> so uh, it seems to me Jane Fairfax just has it all. She has it all going for her. nature and nur- nature and nurture both have mm-hmm. made her quite a woman. Right. The only, I mean, from the point of view of a male, the only thing I can say for Emma versus Jane Fairfax is Jane Fairfax strikes me as somewhat bloodless, whereas Emma is full of vitality. I mean, she's just she's a She's a firecracker, you know, and I, I can see Mr. Knightley. I mean, there's something to that. She's a vital, vital woman who's willing to be wrong, who's, who's willing to make mistakes. And, and I suspect that Emma is a, you know, I mean, now I'm suspecting about odd things, but is a more passionate lover for it. Like she's just going to be a lover of deep passion for him. And he's such an um, even keeled Stillwater man that uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny coupling because Emma's not, I mean, you know, she's not even keel, calm, lake disposition in my senses that there's something in him which uh, likes that about her and, and uh, likes the fact that he sort of brought her around to his sort of gentility, but knows that she'll keep, uh, she'll keep a little bit of that fire in her soul. Whereas Jane Fa- Fairfax is polished, you know, and beautiful, but, you know, that's not... I don't know. That's, yeah, that's very interesting, that male perspective. It's not the whole it? package. <laughs> yeah. That's very that's wonderful, Shiloh. So here's yeah. what I see. Here's why why I think we women, female readers anyway, root for Emma, Emma over Jane Fairfax, because we and not just women, I think anybody, because we see her flaws, and in her flaws, we see our own flaws. She can get beyond her flaws. To be someone that he that is, that is can love him as much as she is loved by him, because she has gone because she has been able to um, um, get over herself. You know, she's been able to just to, to deal with her flaws. We are all flawed. You know, none of us is perfect. We, as much as we would like to love our husbands and wives as perfect beings, we cannot do that because we're human. And that is why I think. I think we we root for Emma. Emma is us in a in a way. 
right? To stands in for us in our partnerships with our own with our own partners in how we are able to overcome the flaws in ourselves to be worthy of being loved and to love in the substantial way. And in a sense, we're all in need to a certain extent of an education, right? I mean, that's what life is itself, an education. Shiloh, on that, that question of, of Emma uh, uh, and Jane Fairfax, I mean, I just find, find what you've just been saying really interesting. And I think that is a perspective. Uh, I think you just gave uh, a man's perspective that um, that would be be more the way men would think than women. But, but there's something that you said that um, I very much agree with. Emma is spiritedness writ large. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- I think that um, it's not just passion. It's also spiritedness. She is yeah. alive. She's vital. Um, and I've, I've, I've thought to myself before about book two of Plato's Republic when uh, we're introduced to Adamantus and Glaucon. And Emma is Glaucon. And Jane yeah. Fairfax, in a sense, is a better Adamantus, but she's got all that moderation about her. And, sure. But, but Glaucon could go... He, he could go in one direction or the other, and we wonder what will become of him because he could become a tyrant, yeah, or he could become uh, someone of of genuine superiority, really fit to rule, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and 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 remember at the very beginning be, beginning of of the novel, Emma what Knightley and Mrs. Weston talk about what will become of Emma. We wonder what will become of her. Yeah. 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 And this is an incredibly interesting human being. It is. Who can can go one way, a good way, and can go another way all downhill. Yeah. And she's rough, like I mean, and I mean roughly developed in the sense that she's not fully educated. And there's something about that that's attractive. I like very much at the beginning where um she's taking out her pencils to begin to draw Harriet. And the narrator, uh in the narrative voice at least says, you know, Emma takes up these things like drawing and the piano, and she never pursues them to mastery. But what she does, the little bit that she does is always very good. And then she puts it down and goes some other way. Jane Fairfax is sort of the inverse of that. She has mastered the piano. She could probably sit down and draw a perfect portrait, but Emma just kind of dabbles and then is easily distracted. And there's this point where Harriet comes over, and I don't know if they're going to sit down to sew or what they're going to stitch a few things. But uh, the narrator then says, they were going to, oh, no, uh, Emma was going to read with Harriet. Because, you know, Emma's always concerned that everyone read. She's like, well, does Mr. Martin read? Who, you know, and then, but then the narrator says, Emma had made, or nightly maybe says, Emma had made a list of books from when she was 14 that she wanted to read. And she never read them, but she enjoyed making the list. You know, that there's this, Emma has this kind of, conception of herself. I'm going to read all of these books. I'm going to draw. And then she never does it, you know, and there's this, I suspect because there's this other thing, this vitality, this distraction, you know, she's going to read with Harriet and the narrator says, but they just found it more interesting to chat. Uh, They, you know, they they ended up not reading. This is um, on the one hand. uh, And you like this Shiloh. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of knock against Emma, but it's, it's over and against Jane Fairfax, who's known as this polished person. And I think that for Knightley, you know, there's something rough hewn about Emma. He's known her his whole life. They're friends and they become something dearer. And he's endeared to this. Um, and, and what I guess maybe to go back to your um, to go back to what you said about Glaucon, like Glaucon and perhaps less like Adamantus. I think this is the point of view of Plato. 
Glaucon is educable by Socrates. He's probably the most educable man there uh, in, in, in the room at the time. Um, that's not to say he's the most intelligent. That might be Paul Marcus or, uh, so of course, Socrates himself. But Glaucon is, is known for the eagerness of his questioning. There's something about Emma that is this way. She's deeply curious. And I think this is a kind of indication of it. Um, so maybe Knightley likes, likes this about her. I do. Um, so the things that you're saying about Emma, her vitality, and also yeah. her desire to master the arts and yeah. the her inability to really follow through, those are things that remind me of Elizabeth Darcy. I mean, excuse me, Elizabeth Bennet and her character, right? Aren't those similar traits? Elizabeth is, you know, she says, if I take, if I would take the trouble to practice, I'd be better at playing the piano, you know, and there's a lot in, in Pride and Prejudice about how vital her vitality and her um, physicality and all that kind of stuff. It seems to me that's a little similar. Versus her sister, Jane Bennett. Yes, exactly. Who's Versus her sister, Jane. beautiful and, uh, and has her own accomplishments, but there's something about Elizabeth Bennett that's not as beautiful, but more attractive to Darcy. And how interesting yeah. that Jane is the same name. <laughs> the character, yeah. the Jane character, has similar characteristics in both novels. Yeah, and so like Elizabeth Bennet, had she practiced more, you know, she would have been more proficient, as opposed to Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Remember what she <laughs> said? Uh, I should have been a great proficient had I ever learned. <laughs> it's odd you say this because I wonder, I mean, I know that the character is named Jane and that this is Jane's first name and these kinds of things, but I, you know, I, I like to think about the nature's of the sorts of people from whom these great works spawn. So if you think about the man Dostoevsky must have been to write the Brothers Karamazov, what kind of artist are you that that can come out of your mind? Or with Jane Austen, uh, Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, what kind of human type are you? Because that's not me. Like this kind of thing cannot come out of me. I mean, there's a real order of rank here. And these people are, are, have talents that, you know, Shakespeare, world historical talent. With Jane Austen, I wonder, um, I, what kind of nature was she, and are these women, Emma, uh, Elizabeth, who are in a way rough-hewn, vital women, I would think that Jane Austen would have had to have been that way, sort of deeply curious, a bit unpolished. It's a weird for a woman to be a novelist, you know, she's clearly very learned. Um, as, as Colleen has pointed out, she's criticizing high politics, like she's throwing grenades, like this is not and so I wonder if she's not, in a certain sense, this type of woman, you know, herself. I, I don't know what you make of that, but it would seem to me that she would have to be in order to, to write these beautiful works. She's not a pushover. She's not just pretty and playing the piano. Yeah, not at all. I mean, Jane Austen was, in my view, a prodigy. Jane yeah. Austen is the rarest of the rare. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's, it's hard to find a comparison, uh, what this, the, the, the talents and character that this woman had, which isn't to say that she was, uh, a woman of, of perfect virtue. I think she might've been tempted to make that joke at Box Hill. It would have crossed her mind. That's what I mean. Though, yeah. though she wouldn't have said it because exactly. the thing about the, the joke at Box Hill is it's true. About it is true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think of Jane Austen as the rarest of the rare. She is. I don't think she was well educated, right? She was not not well educated. Her father was, I think, a, a 
he was the rector of a, of a parish, their local parish. Now she's from Hampshire, a small place. Yeah, yeah, self-educated. Yeah, not yeah, not formally well educated, but her father had an extensive library. And remember, I mean, he's he might not uh, be of the upper crust, but he's a clergyman, and they are part of the educated class. And her brothers received, you know, good formal education. You have to think of someone like Jane Austen, who said things like. Um, made the, you know, comparison between dull elves and sharp elves, uh, that she wasn't rummaging around her father's library and filling, you know, finding all the food for thought. Well, actually, in Pride and Prejudice, when Lady Catherine de Bourgh grills Elizabeth Bennet, you know, about her education, um, where did you get your education? Who taught you? Did you go to London and study with the masters? Did your mother teach you? And, you know, poor Elizabeth Bennett says, well, no. And did you have a governess? And Elizabeth Bennett said, no, no governess. No, certainly Mrs. Bennett didn't teach them. But Elizabeth Bennett said, says, um, I had all the masters that were necessary. Now, what does she mean? She meant she had books. Yeah. That's Jane Austen's own response to her uh, about her own education, I think. Yeah, that's it's extraordinary and very beautiful. And, and and what's stunning to me about her is that um, all of these, she had those books and then all of the characters whom she writes exist inside of her. She, you know, she's such a multifaceted human being. And that's what I mean when I talk about Emma and, and Elizabeth Bennett and these multifaceted women. All of these characters in this book are pieces of Jane Austen's own psyche. And they're, you know, and so she, the complexity, her psychological complexity must know no bounds. We have to wind down. And so what I want to do is give Colleen the last word, but I want to ask you, Colleen, I ask this at the end of every podcast, or at least the ones that are on specific figures. We have a listener who has never read Jane Austen before, and they are looking for the gateway drug to, to beginning to dress up as characters of Jane Austen in a year or two. What perhaps two novels, and this is a very difficult question because they all have their merits, but what are the first two novels that you would begin with? Well, I would certainly begin with Pride and Prejudice, because I think it's, uh, as Jane Austen herself said, it's light, bright, and sparkling. And um, to uh, evoke Plato again, if there's such a thing as goodness, sometimes the way we have to be brought to that is through pleasure. The head is sometimes led by the heart. And so this is, in a sense, the useful lie that the good is pleasurable. Uh, because in this case, it certainly is in Pride and Prejudice. It's so, it's such an easy novel to fall in love with. And the characters are, I mean, think of Darcy and Elizabeth. They're right up there with Benedict and Beatrice and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, these are, these are just some of the, the, the most beautifully crafted characters in all of uh, the history of the novel. The second uh, of Jane Austen's novel, well, let it be the reader's choice. All are fair game after that. Fair enough. So start with Pride and Prejudice, everybody. Well, look, thank you, Colleen, and thank you, Betty. This has been a, a real pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Shiloh and Betty. Thanks very much. Thank you. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. 
You can email us feedback at freemind at colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Vincent.